This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. No, I had disgusting food when I was a child. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Inedible. My mum did something called chicken mess. Oh, gosh. Which was yesterday's leftover chicken with a tin of asparagus soup. Oh, God. Oh, God. A tin of mushroom soup. Oh, God. And macaroni. And she'd slurp it around. I loved it at the time. And then I went back, like, when I was in my 20s, and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> this disgusting. That really does sound disgusting, though, I have to say. However, I can think of some pretty rank things that my mother used to make. Boiled beef and carrots. Boiling beef? Ugh. She's trying to find a way of doing it so it would be tender, and it turns out there is no way. <laughs> Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlour game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? 
And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today is best-selling author and psychotherapist Julia Samuel. Doing my own podcast feels like therapy an awful lot of the time, so it felt only right to have an actual psychotherapist on the show. I was first introduced to Julia's work when my mum died and somebody gave me her extraordinary book, which is called Grief Works. And even though I couldn't read it right away because reading about other people's experiences of grief and loss just compounded my own. But it's interesting, in the process of grief, you reach a point where you need to feel that solidarity, or I did, and you need to feel like you're not alone. And that book helped me so much. And every time I have a conversation with Julia, I feel like I unravel some deep Gordian knot that I've been holding on to. And this conversation that we had was no different. What person, place or experience most altered your life? Working in the NHS. Will you explain what the NHS is? Because I have a lot of American listeners. Yes. So the NHS is held in this sort of brand of what is the best thing about the UK is that you can be ill and go into an NHS hospital or doctor. And at the point of meeting, you never have to pay whatever is wrong with you, whether it's acute, whether it's chronic, you will have your health needs met. And it is true. Of course, it's also a broken system because the weight and burden of it is so enormous. But for me, I mean, I'm now on the ethics committee of Imperial College because I couldn't leave it and I still meet the doctors. So for me, I would walk there from home. It's about half an hour walk from when I was 30 to when I was 55, 56. And wearing my lanyard, I loved my NHS lanyard. <laughs> <laughs> that would give me 10% off from the coffee shop, but also beep doors, open the door. And as I beeped into the door, there's this crappy building that is Victorian and falling apart. But I belonged. And there was a little sign that said, you know, psychotherapist this way. And it was this thing of being part of something that was so much bigger than me. There was the building that contained me, the people in it who I knew for decades, the nurses, the amazing doctors, going up to the special care baby unit, going into the pediatric intensive care unit, working on the maternity wards, the families I met who, when I was there, there were 75 languages spoken in the hospital every day. So I met thousands of types of lives and living and beliefs. And it expanded me and I kept my lanyard. I can't, I don't know what to do with it. I honestly want to kind of embalm it in silver. <laughs> yes. Frame it. Oh my gosh. Definitely. I'll do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that's the most inspiring answer to that question I think I've ever heard on this podcast, because it is the thing that makes me proudest to be British is the NHS. 
is the fact that we post-war like looked at what had happened to all these people and as a society and as a country made this change to go, we will have socialized medicine. No one will pay for healthcare. We will take care of everybody. And there was just something about a country that wraps its arms around you. And then that people go and that you work there for peanuts. You work there and you are in service. All the nurses and all the doctors and all the people that work on those wards are there in service of the people that live in that country. And there's something that is so beautiful and community-based. It was incredible. It was incredible being part of something where I saw those doctors would work 15 hours to save a child's life. I would support teams of nurses when there'd been a death or uh, and doctors, or we'd go out and have the most disgusting pizza to celebrate at Christmas. But it was the best Christmas party I ever had. You know, <laughs> all of those things because of the dark humour and the knowing each other and the tears and the hugs and the intensity and the exhaustion. But also they saved lives. And I had a tiny part to play in that I supported the families through them. And it was just, I feel so lucky. So what quality do you like least about yourself? Do you have an owl? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I do quite like myself. But the one I, I don't like because it scares me is I'm not good with my own anger. It kind of sits in me and it kind of ruminates and toxifies all my other feelings. And except for my husband, who I'm really good at being angry with, and he's quite good at kind of dealing with me when I'm angry. I'm not good at expressing it. And then, it, of course, it hangs around. And then I kind of wake up at four in the morning wanting to punch someone's lights out rather than, as I would tell them to do if they were my client, to be assertive, talk clearly, say what you're upset about, you know, be specific. But I don't, I don't do it myself very much because I'm so frightened of them knocking me out when I'm angry with them. Has that happened? Have you been overwhelmed by your rage? Twice. Mm. With one of my children and with my husband. That is not said with pride. I understand that. I feel like everybody has. And the people we are angriest with and hate the most are normally, well, in my case, the people I love the most and need the most. Indifference is the opposite of love, isn't it? Not hate. So it's people that really, okay, I can be annoyed with someone at work. We don't really want to punch their lights out. It's people that I really care about who really get to me. I think that's a very noble way of looking at anger. I don't know, there is someone right now who I am so angry with and they are not somebody that I love. And they've triggered in me all of these feelings of like lack of self-worth. And they're a really, in quotes, powerful person. And the fact that they're a woman makes everything worse. But it's funny, I've just sort of been sitting with the anger and as opposed to being triggered by it, I've sort of been, I've been trying to be fascinated by it and interested and curious. And it hasn't shifted anything yet, but it feels slightly more being the observer with it than being in it. It's weird. It makes my heart beat faster actually thinking about... Even thinking about it. So interesting. We're such little animals. I mean, we really are. We, we forget because we think we're so bloody clever, but we're really not. No, we're animals and we respond like animals. And I mean, I would guess I have not the faintest idea and I could be completely wrong that the level of your anger is probably to do with an earlier part of you that felt overpowered by someone. It is. That probably wasn't this person. Nope, it's exactly right. It was being bullied by a girl when I was younger. It's the same feeling of powerlessness to make them like you. But that comes with shame. 
huge amount of shame because you can't help but go, there must be something wrong with me because this person doesn't like me, as opposed to there is something going on with them that makes them need to be whatever it is, aggressive or intolerant of people around them. But I don't know. I like the idea that even someone like you, who helps people all the time with the things that are difficult in their own lives, that of course you deal with things that are difficult about your own character, but that the awareness is surely what makes it bearable. I mean, I have as many flaws and battles as other people. I can probably tell you what my flaws are because I have quite a lot of insight after like 32 years of doing this thing. But I'm as flawed as everybody else. And for my family, it's unbelievably annoying when people come up to them (laughs) and say things to my husband like, oh, your wife. She's amazing. She's amazing. I mean, this must happen to you too. And he literally wants to say, well, he does say, well, you should try being married to her. And then they say, no. And I'm standing there. I've just been a complete cow in the car all the way, wherever it is, been a total bitch. And then I'm smiling, going, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh my God, but this is what, when I came on your podcast, we talked about this because I'm still obsessed with it. I think I've been obsessed with it my whole life. It's the idea of being completely aware of a quality that is not necessarily a good quality that we see about ourselves and the effect that it has on the world around us. And yet there doesn't seem to be any evolution in the way in which one interacts with it, apart from having an awareness. I literally feel like I went from being ignorant about my shit to being completely aware of it and being able to talk about it and give it a name and be articulate and probably write about it. And yet I haven't seen any actionable change. I always thought that becoming aware about something would be the kind of nascent point of the evolution of that difficult thing. And why the fuck is that not true? Because you're human. I don't know who ever told you that knowing something and naming it would make you 360 degrees unflawed. I do. I have this idea that there is this place where you can take all of the hard things about yourself and that if you do the right things, you can clean them up and then they will heal and you will be a better person. Well, (laughs) I don't know which books you've been reading, but from... (laughs) My understanding is it isn't that we take our bad stuff, tidy it up and make it look nice and shiny and new. It's that we have all the wounds that we had. We get ignited, annoyed, triggered in the same ways that we always have the same fault lines. The thing that awareness does, it means that we can choose between response and action. So you have that moment where you choose. And in that choice is the difference between a serious disaster and actually speaking up for yourself. Because how you represent that part of you that wants to say, punch this woman's lights out, will be informed by all the different aspects of yourself that are going on. But you can do it with a kind of confidence and Mm. assertiveness I mean, I'm saying this having not been good at anger myself, but what I'm arguing is that there is never going to be a picture-perfect version of any one of us. It's how we manage our fault lines and frailties and stuff. Well, perhaps that's what I can work on or that we could all work on is managing. I mean, Julia, I'm ashamed that I wrote a book called Managing Expectations and yet my expectations are completely unmanageable. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. 
The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? It is my husband. I mean, I've been married 42 years. I got married when I was 20. Wow. And I'm 63. And without question, it was the single best decision I ever made in my life. And one I did really from complete ignorance. I mean, I was literally just 20. I got engaged two weeks after my 20th birthday. Holy cow. I mean, I want to run him over, obviously. And and all of those things. But he knows me and he loves me as he knows me. And I feel safe with him. What are the chances of two people's evolution as parallel individuals, but joined together in holy matrimony? What are the chances that you would manage to evolve in concert with each other? And are there things that you both had to do in order for that to work? I think that if you look at the stats, it's just under 50%. Probably 40% of couples divorce, but more couples don't marry and their stats of separation are higher than divorce. But to marry somebody at 20, when you're closer... To a child. You're closer to being a little child than you are to being like who you are today. Like, what's your husband's name? Michael. So you and Michael, like, I just find it fascinating that if he was in his 20s, that 20-year-old Michael and 20-year-old Julia can evolve to 30 
35, 45, 55, and now 60. My aunt, who was married for 60 years, she said it was just a decision. It's a decision that you keep making every single day and that it's no more complicated than that. But I feel like there must be some extraordinary thing that people who get married in their 20s and are still married when they're 61 do or figure out. And what can you please tell me what that is? I think your aunt is right. I think it's partly a decision. I think all the things that you've heard, you know, many times from many people before, it's like if you ask yourself the question, are we a good fit? Do we have the same beliefs? Do we have the same outlook? Are we good at repairing after a rupture? Do we talk a same or a collaborative love language? Do we love each other in the right way, you know, that works for each of us? I mean, one of the things that works for me is that I have to work quite hard to get his attention and his love. And that is quite good for me. It really drives me nuts, (laughs) but it keeps me interested, right? Yeah. And also the kind of other men that I was brought up with, they never believed in me to work or have a career or to use my brain. And he always, and his mother actually, always from the moment we got together, wanted me to work. I think he wanted me to work because he wanted me to be tired and... Less sassy. Less sassy. (laughs) (laughs) And not having affairs. (laughs) Tire her out. She'll be too tired to have an affair and she'll be too tired to give me lip. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is part of it. And the idea of me having lunch people all the time and shopping, it just was not his thing. But luckily, I always worked. So, I mean, I worked from when I left school at 16. I've never not had a job. That's really funny. I love that love would be having, you know, a really robust work ethic for your partner. (laughs) Like that's, that's really sexy and romantic, actually, because there's longevity built into that. Well, because he doesn't have to meet all of my needs. No, and I think that's also the biggest misnomer is the idea that our love partner should somehow tick all of the boxes of the things that we need from other people. It's just absolute bollocks. So, I mean, having a job that I find that I can do, which because he earns a lot more than me, he enabled me to do. I have a completely different work identity where I'm not known as his wife. I'm not known as a mother. I'm known for my job as a therapist. And that I can go on doing, you know, all of my, a lot of my friends, their children have left home, the husbands are retiring, and they're kind of, you know, working in bits and bobs. But I have this kind of machine inside my brain that just wants to keep going. And it keeps me interested. And I think it keeps me interesting. I mean, I, I'm not always interesting, obviously. But having a purpose to get up for, Freud talked about love and work. You need love for connection and meaning, but you also need work for structure and meaning. And, you know, what are you for? I've always known what am I for? It is so interesting. Curiosity and enthusiasm. I mean, my mother did everything she possibly could to keep her businesses afloat and was constantly making financial choices that were startling to her children and maybe to other people of why she would keep investing in things that by their metric weren't working. And it's not the only metric. It's not. And I I saw it was worth it. It was worth her putting all the money that she had into these businesses because her interest and her curiosity and her work ethic, that's what made her happy. And the idea of sort of saving all her money, I think it was very much like, well, what am I saving it for? I need to keep investing in being engaged with life in the way that I see it. I really understand that, like how that fuels a life and keeps a person interested and interesting. Being 62, nearly 63, I'm of the age and the background that I was never expected to work. So I have a twin brother 
who my father expected to go to university, to go and get a job and to carry on working. Whereas when the school said to my dad she should take A-levels, my father went, what for? What would she be going to university for? What is the point? And it made a decision in me from a very young age. I can remember sitting at my desk in my bedroom. I had to share a room with my sister who didn't like me at all and doing my homework. And work for me has been a saviour. So using my brain, having homework to do, getting a job done. I mean, it's probably been too much, but being determined to do it has saved me from many holes. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Work, before my son, work really was the great love of my life. I mean, and still is in a more balanced way, I think. When I talk to clients who are, you know, in the stage like my daughters are of having children and working, even keeping your foot in the work door to go back to, that you can kind of work part time while you're parenting, then you can go back to it. Because, you know, it's likely if we're lucky that we're going to have a long life. The average life expectancy for those of us that are kind of lucky as well is 100. So what are we going to do with all of that time if we're not working? Yeah, it can't all be Love Island, Julia. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster? I can, as it happens. I first went to AA when I was 25. I started smoking when I was seven. There's a picture of me writing lines with my twin brother, Hugo. I promise I will never smoke again. And I started drinking when I was about 11. And everyone in my family drank a huge amount. And luckily, I literally woke up one day and I thought, I just can't do this. I can't do this. And I tried doing it on my own without AA. And I sort of count the number of units. And then I do deals with myself the whole time. Like if I have four today, then I won't have two tomorrow. You know, but you'd get pissed one night. Then you'd have a hangover two days and then get pissed like day three or four, whatever it is. And so I went to AA and I did not speak a word for like two years. I only went twice a week. I went at lunchtime. So it was near my office. That's what got me interested in therapy. I had no idea people could talk about how they felt. That was a whole new world to me. I always thought you just faked it and pretended everything was fine until I went to AA. So that was your first experience of therapy was seeing somebody getting up to share. Was it shocking hearing them speak about how they felt about their life and the things that happened to them? I was completely blown away completely blown away. And the only person I told I was going was my husband because I didn't dare tell anybody. Because then, you know, this is 40 40 years ago. AA was still quite shaming then. Addiction was still quite a shameful thing. Hmm. I haven't drank since then at all. But then when I used to go out for dinner, people would like look at me weirdly when I wasn't drinking and they'd kind of try and ply you with drink and stuff. But it was a complete revelation. It was amazing. But I didn't speak. I was just learning and taking it in and I'd rehearse in my head what I would say and I never dared actually speak it out. What made you eventually raise your hand? I can't remember. I I genuinely can't remember. I would tell you. But I do remember speaking and I didn't die and the sky didn't fall in and people were kind. Did you have a sponsor even when you weren't speaking? No, I just like, it was literally like it was my secret. I'd go in 
<laughs> on Tuesdays and Thursdays and sneak out. I must have been ashamed of it. Well, you stayed, which is the only thing that matters. You stayed. Yeah, and I stayed sober. You showed up and you stayed sober. Amazing. I was cycling this morning and I had the first time I've ever had this thought, what if I start drinking again? What would happen if I started drinking again? And I thought, oh, that's such a dangerous thought. That is a gateway to Julia Salmon. You do not want to go down because you don't know. And what's the point of risking it? Yeah. I second that, Julia Samuel. <laughs> yes. I'll be the echo to your Jiminy Cricket. Thanks. <laughs> 100%. Keep cycling. Don't drink. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So what question would you most like answered? I'm going to have to put this in context. So the context is that my specialty is children and babies dying. So for like 30 years, I've supported families who have children and babies that die. And so my perception of children living to a, a long life has been changed by hours every working with terrible deaths. So my, my question, which actually makes me cry saying it, is are my children and my grandchildren going to live and have a long life? Because it's what I want more than anything else in the world. Mm. Makes my heart stop. 
I'm sure I can imagine exponentially as a grandmother, but it is the worst thought in the entire world as a mother. Like it is, it's heart stopping. If you knew the answer to that question, would it change the way in which you lived your life? Yeah. I mean, every night before I go to sleep, I thank God that my children are alive and well, and my grandchildren. I say their name, mm. every single one of them. And my sons-in-law and my daughter-in-law. I'm not an anxious person and I don't feel anxious all the time, but I think I would feel liberated in some way of having that as my worst worry. Yeah, listen, it's an awful lot to carry around having one child, having multiple children who then have partners and their own children. It's a lot. And a joy, you know, it's the greatest joy as well. You know, love is a risky business, right? Yes. It really, really is. And it is not billed as such. I feel like I was sold a very odd bill of goods. I think by myself, being the small shopkeeper that I was, selling this idea that love was, you know, going to solve everything as opposed to push you really to the limit and make you know yourself and give you all these gifts. I mean, love in all of the books and the films that you're in and, and other great movie stars are in is like a soft skill, right? But love is hard. It's the hardest thing we do. It's the thing that matters most, that love is the strongest medicine. It's the thing that heals us and holds us together and gives our life meaning. And when we look back at our life, it's the people that we've loved and loved us that matter most. But also it's the hardest thing to sustain and allow ourselves to dare to love and take the risks and the costs. And it's billed as a soft, easy thing, but it ain't. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of like Hollywood and music is where the way in which it is sold. But it is rigorous. Love is rigorous and it deeply painful. But then so is being a human. You know, that could also be descriptive of the fundament of being alive. You know, I remember the first head book I ever read, that was probably about 25 and there were lots of catastrophic things going wrong and the first line of m scott peck's book a road less traveled was life is difficult and i thought hang on no one ever told me that although it had been my entire life but somehow it's this secret that no one had said it's normal that it's difficult not like i'm struggling through it and i'm the one that's failing and everyone else has got it sorted Life's difficult. Right. Okay. Boom. God, I mean, I wish, first of all, I wish it was taught in schools in like a robust and fluid way. I wish we were taught about love. I wish we were taught about death. I wish we were taught about these things as opposed to sort of picking it up from God knows where, like all these, this little patchwork that I've used as a map in my life was created by this little child who had no idea about any of it, but pieced together what became pretty good map. Well, I mean, it's a constitution that I'm now finding it quite difficult to amend, even though I would really like to. Like my ideas about love, I'm now, you know, at 52, I'm with this extraordinarily wonderful man, having been constantly in my life, absolutely sort of brought to my knees by my relationships with men. And in a way that I kept going, why am I not learning? Like, why is everything seemingly repetitive? And I feel like I'm only now being able to amend this constitution that I wrote when I was little about what love is or what love is meant to be, because this person has this experience extraordinary spirit and patience. And also, what did he call it? He said, we have a shared fortitude. He was like, it's not me being patient with you. It's that we have a shared fortitude. And I loved that. 
But I'm only now figuring that out. That's why I wish it was taught in schools. Like why I wish these big things like love and death and life were actually taught alongside physics and maths and history. I think they should be taught. Or at least discussed, you know, so that they're not this huge journey that a child is expected to go on with no tools. Because the tools that all children have, they learn from the adults around them. And that's the map that they're given, that kind of internal working model of love looks like this and moods look like this and work looks like this. You learn it from the people around you, the adults around you. It's interesting when their tools have been, like my mother and my father's tools, well, you just get on with it, which is a very, very useful tool to have. But it also has implicit in it, like not dealing with stuff. Turn away. Yeah. Forget and move on. Just keep going. Kick on. That's the English saying. Exactly. It's very, very British. It really is. It is a very useful tool, but it needs to be augmented. So it's and. Kick on and name what's going on. Experience it. Express it. Let the pain of it change you. Let pain is the agent of change. Let the pain run through you. And as painful as it is, support yourself through it so that you are expanded and grow through the pain rather than build your armor to block the pain. In your life, Julia, where and when were you happiest? It was not difficult for me to choose this because I'm never happy in those big kind of scale things like your birthday or a big event. My happiest moments are those tiny moments. Like I remember New Year looking around the dining room table and all my children were there and they all had a partner who loved them and they had jobs and nobody had a problem. Nobody had some awful thing that was happening. And I just felt this, it makes me cry almost. I felt this kind of relief, like, ah. And then, of course, about two weeks later, something terrible happened (laughs) and you go off again. But those moments of all of the people I love most in the world are loved and they have kids and they are happy is an amazing, amazing moment. I love that so much. I think about that so much as well, of the lily padding, the leaping from the lily pad. Like, is it the respite? Is the anomaly, the happy moments and the stress and the difficulty is what's normal? Or is it the other way around? I look at it that the happy moments are the moments that sustain you when you go through the difficult moments. And sometimes I look back at them when it's been difficult quite soon after. I look back at them with a kind of poignancy like, oh, I wrote a book called This Too Shall Pass. And at the beginning, I said, you know, we say bad things are going to pass, but we have to remember good things are going to pass, too. It's not just a one way street. Oh, yes. But I, as I can feel the bad thing happening, I then have, it's like a photograph album, the moments that have been good. or It's often simple, isn't it? When they're simple and it's not complicated, there's nothing big happening. And they sustain me, completely sustain me. Do you return to them in moments of hardship? Do you consciously sit down and remember something good, remember sitting around the table with your children, all of them peaceful and content? And does that put a dent in the hard moments, do you think? In the peak of the hard moments, so you've just been told some bad news, it's too painful to look at the happy one because it's too far from where I am. Mm. But as the intensity lessens, then I can look back and that's what gives me hope. And the hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. 
you know, believing that I can have moments of that. And that I will have moments of that because I've already had them. And I, I know from my job and myself that my belief system is informed by my experience. And so my experience is that we can have really good times when everything is okay. They are quite rare. And we can have kind of life, you know, normal times. And then there are the kind of also hopefully rare, very bad times. And knowing that we have all of those and seeing it like that enables me to kind of normalise it rather than, well, I think you talked to me about this. When you're in the weather, you never believe the weather's going to change. Yeah. And then it does. (laughs) Yeah. In the moment when one wakes up every day and is maybe faced with the same set of circumstances that have not yet changed. It's like they've just been there waiting at the end of your bed while you sleep. And if, you know, you wake up and you've sat and breathed and you've maybe done a little meditation or you've read something good and yet still there they sit at the end of your bed. Is there something that you do or that you recommend to people that they do to help engage with what's beyond that anxiety of of circumstance? So what I do, and it's so unsexy. I love unsexy. I want the flannel nightdress of therapies, thanks. I don't want the lingerie. (laughs) The 18-year-old me who was going forward did not see that I would be an expert on grief and a psychotherapist. I kind of thought I'd be sexy and fancy, but no. (laughs) But why I said that was because I've had to work out for myself and for other people what works. And what works is not glamorous and sexy, but practical. And the thing that works the best, because grief or anxiety, a loss, whether it's a living loss from, you know, bad news, your boyfriend's broken up with you, you've lost your job, or from death, it hits your body and sends your body into hyperarousal. So you're in kind of fourth gear. Your autonomic nervous system goes on vigilant, vigilante almost. It can be like you go into attack. And the single thing that helps you most is get outside and take some exercise. Moving, even if you're in an urban environment, if you can get to a park better. So cycle, run, walk fast. And even if you only do it for 10 minutes, you will always feel better when you walk back through the door. If you can walk back through the door and journal for like five minutes, do a breathing meditation for five minutes, and then give yourself a stonkingly good breakfast, you will feel much, much better. And be able to face the the kind of waves of adversity and loss and whatever the feelings are as they assail your body. That is so brilliant. It's what I wail the loudest is what can I do? I wail at my lovely boyfriend. I want something actionable. What can I do? And that makes so much sense. But for you, it's the sea. Yeah, it is. You go surfing. But in London, it's hard because there is no sea. I've often been known to run out of my house and up to the park and done exactly what you said. Just go and sit by the serpentine and try and feel differently. Well, your body feels differently. Difficult feelings sit in your body and they're like looking for a place to go. Mm. And they're kind of on alert, waiting for the threat to come at you. So if you actually move your body, you tell your body you've flown. So if you're in fight or flight, you've told your body you've flown. So your cortisol levels drop and your oxytocin, your dopamine, your kind of connecting levels where you can connect with yourself. Get a hug from your boyfriend or anybody. I mean, practically a stranger will always work for you. It's so 
interesting. I do love, I love the practical physical response to sort of encouraging a different way of feeling about something. And like you said, you can't get from abject misery to joy. The jump is too big. But to take small steps to put yourself physically, to tell your brain that you're in a different place, to tell your body you're in a different place, to then find your way mentally to being in a different place. And then when you're in a different place, your relationship with what's troubling you has changed because you have the capacity to then think more clearly, to collaborate with someone else, to have a conversation with someone else. And their words, their warmth, their love and support for you can sink in. When you're like this, hyper, people, when they hug you, it's like you're brittle. It's like you're armoured. It never goes in. And you basically want to punch their lights out and say, because they're not fixing it. Mm. But when you've moved and you've calmed down and you're kind of centered and you've given yourself a treat, I do think, you know, a good breakfast or whatever it is your treat helps. You're then open, you expand your capacity to connect with other people. And the single biggest thing for all of us, whatever our difficulty that will predict our outcome is the love and connection of others. Hmm. That we can't do life alone. However we connect with others, we need to be and be close and connected to others. Oh, you're such a joy. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful talking to you. It's such beautiful insights on the things that are just the hardest, that are the most normal. Yeah. Well, it's such a pleasure. It's really fun too. Julia's new book, titled Every Family Has a Story, will be in stores across America on November 15th. And you can find her podcast, Therapy Works, wherever you listen to your podcasts. In Therapy Works, you'll hear Julia's guests talk about the big lessons and challenges of their lives. I was on the show. And at the end of each episode, Julia reflects on her session with her two psychotherapist daughters who share their thoughts on the conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to Julia's show as much as I enjoyed being a guest on it. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.